0: If you believe, and I believe, and we together pray, the Holy Spirit must come down and set God's people free. Good morning, Saints. To provide a little context to our worship this morning, we find ourselves in the miniature season of Ascension Tide. I'm sure you all woke up brimming with excitement, but in case you didn't know, Thursday was the Feast of the Ascension, 40 days after Easter and 10 days before the Holy Spirit's arrival at Pentecost, when our tradition holds that Jesus was caught up in a cloud and taken up to heaven to reign with God forever. A popular legend among Episcopal clergy goes that one time, back in the 90s, ascension happened to coincide with graduation at the Virginia Seminary. With the entire school gathered in the chapel, donned in full academic regalia, The celebration ended with a majestic hymn of praise leading out into the courtyard. What the congregation did not know was that an overly innovative seminarian had obtained one of those rather tacky, life-size, manger scene figures of Jesus made of lightweight plastic and had attached to it a bottle rocket device. As the, as the distinguished guest entered the courtyard, the young man lit the fuse and launched our Lord out of the shrubbery into the air and through a cloud of smoke and sparks landing on the roof of a nearby building where his flight came to a rather anticlimactic ending, finally sputtering to its death. When the student was approached by the dean... he defended himself, saying that he was merely trying to dramatize his deep belief in the reality of the ascension of Christ. The dean was not amused. Likewise, you may be glad to know that our flat Jesus has no plans for flights. (laughs) To invoke the late, prolific writer Rachel Held Evans in her open letter to Jesus on this whole Ascension business. Dear Jesus, we weren't ready. We liked you better with your feet on the ground. And yet with craned necks, slacked mouths, a million questions, and no idea what to do next, as we gaze at the bottoms of your feet, here we are. Here we are. We are your feet on the ground now. Ready or not, as Jesus is launched into heaven, Jesus launches us ever deeper into our wounded world to continue Jesus' mission of proclaiming good news to the poor, freedom to the oppressed, release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. Today in Acts, Paul, Silas, and company continue their good news adventure across the Mediterranean as they encounter an unnamed slave girl, A fortune teller, doubly oppressed as she is possessed by a spirit of divination and possessed as a slave, exploited and sold in a sort of carnival sideshow. As she follows them, Paul becomes so irritated with the girl that he in fact exorcises her, not out of compassion, we're told, but out of mere annoyance a testament to divine grace at work through both virtue and vice. I appreciated the bells during the exorcism on the organ, by the way. But the text reports that when the woman's owner saw that his hope of making money was gone, they put Paul and Silas up on trial. Up to this point, the apostles seemed to have no trouble practicing their piety in the city until their actions yield a negative economic impact on cash flow for the slave owner. Only then do they suddenly become subject to vague accusations of disturbance and unlawful religious customs. A biblical reminder to us that in the complexities of discerning how we as individuals and communities are called to live out our faith in public life, that we would do well to follow the money when assessing the real convictions and powers at play upon doing so, and upon doing so, to be prepared to forfeit a cozy friendship with the status quo. Such action gets Paul and Silas thrown in jail. And in a turning of the tables, they are now the the ones in need of liberation. If their public trial and flogging was a shadow of Jesus' crucifixion day, then the episode that follows might be viewed as an earthly mirror of Jesus harrowing of hell, depicted in orthodox iconography with scenes of Jesus breaking the chains of those in death's dark prison and pulling up all of humanity from the grave, leaving nothing behind but piles of broken locks and chains and keys. This image speaks to the universal quality Of God's liberation, not a simple reversal where the oppressed become the oppressors, the captives become the captors, but a new reality in which everyone is freed and no one is left behind. As civil rights leader Fannie Lou Hammer once declared, nobody's free until everybody's free. In the case of today's story, not even the jailer is left behind. Rather than flee the prison, as one would expect, the captives are compelled to stay and wait for him. When the jailer awakens to realize his professional error, he considers taking his own life rather than facing the consequences of his action, asking that pivotal question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? The counter-question is, of course, Saved for what? Most eminently, the jailer needs saving from his own suicidal ideation and the wrath of his superiors when they discover his misstep. But on a more transcendent level, this question resonates with our deepest fears, questions, and insecurities as human beings. I'll never forget my first encounter with playground fundamentalism at age five when a friend asked me if I was saved. I didn't really know what he was talking about, good Episcopalian child that I was. But he said that if I wasn't saved, then I would go down there when I died. To which I exclaimed, I know. They dig a grave and put you in it. And so while popular Christianity has often reduced and distorted this pivotal question to a matter of hellfire and brimstone, don't we all wrestle with this question On a deeply spiritual level, in one way or or another, what must I do to be saved? Or as the message version of the Bible puts it, what must I do to really live? What must I do to really live? And their decisive response, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, the apostles offer a simple sounding invitation that takes a lifetime to live into. For my friends, to believe on Jesus is to believe and trust the one who said that the last shall be first and be freed from our greed and emptiness. To believe in this Jesus is to trust the one who said, let the children come and be freed from your mistrust. Believe and trust the one who knows your every thought and find freedom in knowing that you are loved. Believe and trust the Lord of the Sabbath and find freedom knowing that you are more than your work. Believe and trust the God of forgiveness and be freed from all guilt and all shame. Belief in this mighty Savior is more than making a trite declaration or reciting the Nicene Creed. It's about more than mere virtue signaling or statement making Belief in this Jesus is an invitation to a whole new way, to the baptized life, a life of prayer, of service, of justice, and of love lived out in community for the sake of the world. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul boldly proclaims that there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Theologian Paul Waliske makes the observation that in today's passage from Acts, we get to see how this bumper sticker statement is woven into an enchanting story. A story of people of every gender, status, and religious background encountering the living God among and within one another as they seek understanding, grow in friendship, and share table fellowship Such stories of radical and holy transformation can still be seen today if we have eyes to see. This Wednesday, 14 youth and adults from All Saints will embark on pilgrimage to Cape Town, where we will seek God's presence in the culture and history and people of South Africa. On Saturday, we will journey to Robben Island, where we will learn the story of another real life, modern-day jailer, Christian Brand, who came to Mandela's prison in 1978 as an unquestioningly pro-apartheid 18-year-old white prison guard. Through receiving Mandela's kindness, wisdom, and compassion, he was led to change his views, and the two became close friends. Eventually, Brand began to do favors for Mandela, smuggling him his favorite foods, his favorite hair product, as it were, bringing him messages and even breaking the rules to allow Mandela to hold his new infant grandson at great risk of punishment. Years later, Brand would go on to join other former guards in working at the prison museum, managing the gift shop and maintaining a friendship with Mandela until the end of his life and a powerful witness to true forgiveness and reconciliation. Through pilgrimage, our statements of faith become real-life stories of faith and of love and of hope. And while it can certainly help to get out of one's element, you don't have to go far to be a pilgrim. Indeed, through Christ's ascension, we are all commissioned as his feet on the ground for the pilgrimage of Christian life the life of curiosity and wonder, a life of openness to God's presence and the annoying stranger and the inconvenient detour, the life that frees us from mindless complicity with the powers of oppression to join with God's life-giving and liberating work in the world. My friends, what is it that you need freedom from today? From what do you need saving this morning We may seldom get clouds of glory and flashes of lightning and miraculous earthquakes, but as we journey together into the aftermath of Christ's ascension, the mundanity of the day-to-day, may we not forget that we always have one another, and we have this table where no one gets left behind and everybody gets free. So let all who are hungry draw near, and let all who are thirsty men.